Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today on my program, I'm so happy to have Dr. Al Baird uh, from Phoenix, Arizona. And Al's been an elder for many, many years, uh, has been part of the Boston Church, part of the Boston Movement. I was in the Los Angeles Church for many years and has seen the development of the ICOC from its very inception. And I look forward to talking to him uh, about that, as well as about the recent loss of his wife, Gloria, and other topics. But before we get into this week's episode, I want to let you know about the mission planting to Flagstaff, Arizona. The churches in Arizona are working together to plant a church in Flagstaff in the summer of 2021. I've been asked to form the team and to train its leader. There are already a group of 12 disciples living in Flagstaff right now, and my goal is to form a team of at least 15 to 20 more disciples to double that mission outpost. As I mentioned before, Flagstaff is a beautiful city. About 140,000 people in the metropolitan area. It's at 7,000 feet elevation. It's forested. It's near the Grand Canyon. There's skiing, hiking. If you're an outdoors person, it, it is like Shangri-La. And so I'm looking for people who are willing to move there. Short, long-term missionaries, summer missionaries, families, people that want to take their family to a beautiful location. One of the benefits of COVID is the rise of remote work. And so if you've been thinking about, hey, I'd love to live in a beautiful location and work, this would be an incredible opportunity for you and your family to go to make a difference spiritually as well as just just have a great lifestyle for your family. I'm also looking to hire a couple to lead the planting. And that couple would first move to Tucson for personal training with Pam and me. And so I'm looking for a young couple, married or dating or, or engaged, who've graduated from college. Don't have to have previous church leadership experience. And Pam and I will work, work with you and prepare you to lead a, ch- a planting with solid growth. So we are looking forward to it this next summer. We're going to be up there for three months, one to three months, Pam and I, to help build the team, to build a sense of family, build a sense of unity. And then there'll be a big kickoff with all all the churches in Arizona in September. So if you're interested in being a part of an exciting mission team, leading the team, or if you know of someone who might be a good candidate to go on the team, please contact me. You can can go to robskinner.com. Or you can email me at rob at tucsonchurchofchrist.org or contact me through Facebook. This is an awesome way, a direct way to make this life count and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Back to the program. Al, great to have you on the program today. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. It's, it's amazing. We don't live that far apart, but it, it's a real blessing to have you here in Arizona. The experience that you've acquired over the years and to be able to have you share on the program today, it's amazing. Um, this, this program is geared towards people that want to grow and make a difference. And certainly you have, you and your wife, Gloria, have over the years. Can you tell me a little bit about how you became a Christian? How much time do you have? <laughs> so, that, that was in phases. Uh, my, uh, I, I was a baby during World War II and my dad... Um, was overseas for like four years. So uh, 
just my mom and me. And uh, she became, uh, during that time, a member of the Church of Christ. So uh, I, I grew up going to the Church of Christ with her. And uh, so and I was uh, baptized in Church of Christ. And, but I, uh, I became a member of the Church of Christ. I didn't really become a disciple, uh, a baptized disciple, until many years later. Uh, but that, that, again, is a pretty long story. Uh, I, I was actually a, a part of the Boston church. In fact, I was an elder in the Boston church. Uh, and uh, someone had asked me, uh, Al, how did you become a Christian? And no, but they, they said, when did you become a Christian? And uh, of course, I mean, everybody remembers the date they were baptized, but I couldn't. Mm. Uh, so I uh, I started thinking that okay, how, how what happened? And by then I was I was uh, actually 47 years old uh, in Boston, and and uh, so I went back and said, okay, I need to remember what happened. And uh, so I remember I was I was in church one Sunday, uh, and the preacher before church came by and said, Al, how old are you now? And I said, uh, 15. He said, don't you think it's about time you were baptized? And so I said, well, I thought, well, he's the preacher. He must know. I mean, I, I knew the <laughs> basics. I knew that baptism was forgiveness of sins and things like that. And so I started thinking about, uh, uh, this is all recollection uh, when I was 47. Uh, then then I, I said, okay, uh, I need to get baptized. I remembered that it was like two weeks till Easter Sunday. And I thought, well, yeah, that would be a great time to get baptized because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. And it'd be my, my resurrection, my new birth. And so uh, I was baptized on Easter Sunday when I was 15. And so what I did when I was 47 and someone asked me when I was baptized, I went back to the Farmer's Almanac at, at, uh, at that, that year. <laughs> what, when was Easter? <laughs> That's how I remembered oh, when I was baptized. Oh my gosh. So, so then I got to think and said, you know what? There's something wrong with this picture. Right. So, I got to think about my life at that time. And uh, I, I could not remember a single thing that I re repented of when I was baptized. Hmm. And the more I got thinking about it, I said, you know what? This is not at all the way we teach the Bible to people now. Wow. And so actually then I, uh, uh, basically reconsidered everything and, and was, was baptized when I was 47 years old, wow. uh, April 7th, uh, 1987. Uh, and uh, so it was, a, it was a long journey. And, uh, but it was, it was one that, uh, again, uh, it's, it's in, in thinking about it, of course, the, the early days in Boston, I mean, there, there was no difference to the mainline church and what we were, we were, we were basically a part of the mainline church. And so uh, people just placed membership from the mainline church. Uh, but after, after that, we really started counting the cost with everybody that came, came apart uh, because uh, we realized that a lot of people were like me and had never really studied the Bible. And, and although there were a number of people that, that really had become true disciples, uh, there were also many like me that, that didn't and, and really reconsidered their conversion and, and realize that uh, it, it was not really uh, 
what, what we what we would teach and what we think the Bible teach, teaches uh, to us to do. So uh, it was a, it was a long long story. Wow! Uh, but uh, it takes a lot it was of humi- a long journey. It takes a lot of humility to do that at forty seven and as an elder. That that must have uh, taken a lot of guts on your part. Well, that was another another thing too. Uh, actually, uh, Gloria being more more spiritual than me, uh, she she was actually baptized six months earlier because she'd gone through a similar type journey, but she was baptized in the mainline church when she was eleven, and uh, so she she came to her own conviction that she hadn't hadn't become a true disciple then, and so she was baptized six months earlier than me. But what happened though by that time, uh, that was in 1986. Uh, People respected Gloria so much in the church that when she was baptized, there was a, suddenly a wave of people saying, hey, I need to get baptized. If she needs to get baptized, <laughs> I need to get baptized. Right. And so there was a whole wave of people who had been baptized in Boston Church truly repenting and whatever that uh, that we just finally had to say, hey, stop it. <laughs> your, your baptism was great, whatever. Right. Right. And so when I went through mine, I said, we're not going to do this again. We're not even going to tell people right. do in general that, right. that I'm doing this because we want another wave of people questioning their conversions. Exactly, and causing insecurity in their salvation. Okay, so how did you meet Gloria? You guys are both from Texas, I understand. I uh, had a football scholarship to Abilene Christian University, or at that time, Abilene Christian College. And uh, Gloria was there. Her dad actually was was a language. In fact, he was head of the foreign language department there. Wow. And uh, so uh, uh, we met uh, while we were there uh, and fell in love. And, uh, so, was, uh, so you were like a football like star. The best thing in our life. Uh, I played football there. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I was a star. What was What was your position? <laughs> I, I I was at back in those days there there was I was an end there was no such thing as wide receiver or whatever it was just an end I see because <laughs> everything was basic T formation <laughs> got it got it so and, and you play both ways you play defense and offense <laughs> that's great okay well what was it that stood out to to you about Gloria I mean what what attracted you to her oh my. You don't have enough time. <laughs> uh, I mean, just just everything I, I had had on my wish list and, and beyond. Mm. Uh, and and uh, the main thing uh, was her spirituality mm. and, and also her family. Uh, I think her, her mom and dad were totally unique people. They had, uh, were totally, totally committed Christians as committed as anybody I've ever known. And, and they, uh, Actually, uh, in addition to being uh, uh, head of the foreign language department, they also were missionaries in Mexico. Uh, he had a weekly broadcast, and they'd go every summer uh, to Mexico and, and study with the people that been, they had contacted and baptized them and whatever. And so they started a lot of churches in Mexico and whatever. And actually helped us when we started planning in, in Mexico City. Uh, he actually helped us wow. uh, in contacts there and so forth. And and in fact, he had a song. He had put together a a songbook in in uh, Spanish that we used for years in Mexico. Wow. Uh, but but anyway, uh, 
when I started dating Gloria and, and, and being around her mom and dad and seeing uh, their love for each other and, and they were just totally romantic and whatever. And I said, that's, that's what I want because my mom and dad weren't like that at all. Uh, and so the example that they set and knowing that uh, and seeing that, that uh, Gloria had been raised that way, but also, I mean, she was just, she was just my best friend. Wow. And uh, we, uh, it, uh, we, we dated for, I guess, a year and a half. And uh, uh, it was just, uh, once we got going, it was just love all the way. That's great. Now, you know, there's a lot of people that are listening that are, are looking for the right partner and kind of going, haven't seen it yet, having, maybe having some challenges, having faith that they're going to find that right person. Any advice that you'd give to them? Well, other than obviously looking for someone who is uh, loves God more than they love you, uh, I think probably the second best thing is is you need to find somebody who will truly be your very best friend. Hmm. Not not a good friend, not not a best friend, but your very best friend. And uh, that that was, I think, probably the thing in our marriage that made our marriage so great was first of all the, the the total focus on spirituality and pleasing god but secondly we just love being together we were just truly best friends right and uh to me those, those are two very basic ingredients in having having a good marriage that's awesome that's awesome well tell me how did you guys end up in boston i mean you you still have a, a a southern accent it's not super strong but you can certainly hear it I mean, to Boston of all places seems funny to me. Well, we uh, I, after after Abilene, uh, I went to uh, we we were we married when I finished Abilene, uh, and uh, went to University of Texas for my doctorate in physics, and uh, we decided that uh, when I finished school, uh, I didn't want to stay in the Bible Belt. Or we didn't want to stay in the Bible Belt. We, we actually, and at that time, the uh, the Churches of Christ were, were starting outreach plantings that they call Exodus movements. And uh, I think the first one is to Brazil, and then one to New York, and whatever. But anyway, there was one to uh, to actually Burlington, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. And so <clears throat> we were interested in in that, and. Uh, uh, actually became a part of that planting. And uh, in uh, 1968, when I finished graduate school, uh, and the, the Exodus movements were done in, in plantings by basically uh, a preacher would decide, I, I want to do this. Uh, in our case, there were three preachers uh, on this team. Um, that, and then they went around to churches in, in, in the Bible Belt recruiting people to move to come come a part of that, uh, almost like you're talk, talking about Flagstaff now, and so uh, they there were actually 120 people that moved on this planting. Wow! Uh, and uh, it, it, they just great-hearted people. I mean, they gave up their careers uh, and just started all over, uh, moving moving there. And so uh, we start actually started the church in Burlington, Massachusetts, with 120 people. With three preachers, uh, had uh, three men who were soon became elders, uh, deacons, 
whatever. And so you, you started with a ready-made church, basically. Now, the, the, the problem was, is that uh, everybody was good-hearted, but nobody knew at all how to start a church. In fact, uh, a lot of the people had never even studied the Bible with anybody. In fact, I'm not sure any of the three preachers had ever studied the Bible with anybody. <laughs> so so we, 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 we went up there totally committed, but totally green. Uh, and nobody, nobody knew how to do it. And, and we didn't have any really, really any models. And so people were, were also moving from the Southwest or the Bible Belt to Boston was major culture shock for most, most people uh, because you had uh, basically the Southwest was conservative uh, culturally. Uh, most, uh, most wives were stay-at-home wives. Uh, but Boston was almost totally Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, winners were extreme. Uh, moving from Austin, from University of Texas, for instance, to Boston at that time, Austin was the lowest cost of living city. Over 100,000 people in Boston was the number one cost of living wow. in the U.S. And so uh, there was major culture shock in that. And so every summer, you, you'd have about a third of the group that would move back. And uh, so about the, as, as much as we grew and baptized people, you had people moving back. And so for, for 10 years, it stayed about 120 people. Wow. Uh, Good-hearted people, but uh, never really uh, doing what we had hoped it would do right. in terms of really making a major impact in Boston. But that's that's how we got there, and so uh, it was. Uh, we love the people. Uh, we were we were in that church for uh, 15 years. Wow. I became an elder in that church, and so, uh, we built, built a building in Burlington. In fact, the Boston church now uses some. Uh, so, uh, but uh, it was it was a, a great learn, great learning experience, but certainly not uh, the impact that we had hoped to have. Okay, so let's. So you were twenty eight. You were born in nineteen forty. Is that right? Yep. So, yep. so twenty eight years old. So you're eighty. You're eighty now. Is that right? Right. Okay. Congratulations. That's fantastic. So you went up there twenty eight, and then let's just talk a little bit about that. You asked me to help organize this planting to Flagstaff. What are your thoughts on that? How did you come up with that idea? And what, what do you feel like is going to make the biggest difference in helping Flagstaff get off the ground? It's been there for a number of years, uh, peaked out. I've heard anywhere between 40 and 50 disciples. What was your thinking in, in getting that going and then contacting me about that planting at Flagstaff? Well, obviously, obviously, uh, you know, we want to evangelize our states and uh, Flagstaff uh, with with a, a small group that has had a, a couple of false starts uh, and uh, the uh, the Burfords leading it now, which is, I mean, tremendous pre people, but you know, basically up there, good-hearted in retirement and leading a, a little group, uh, the the opportunity to to really build a a, a strong group there is, is obviously what what every church wants to do uh, in any state is to be able to evangelize the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, with you and Pam uh, going to Tucson and, and building a strong church there. 
you certainly, uh, you and Pam have the expertise of, of how to do that. And so partnering with, with you uh, and uh, we, we really have a vision then of building a, a great group in, in Flagstaff, but uh, primarily you have the experience and, and the knowledge of how to do it. And, and also you have the heart to do that. So you were uh, a no brainer choice okay. to, 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 to do that. Thank you. Well, Pam and I were excited about the opportunity to plant another church and get that going. I, I really love the Burfords and, and in, inspired by the fact that they went up there in retirement and led that church when most people are just, you know, heading to Boca Raton or something. But now what, there's probably people listening to this broadcast and they're thinking, man, I'd love to go with my husband or with my wife and my family, but I got kids, I've got a house. You've, you've already experienced that yourself going to, to Boston on a uh, domestic planting. Any encouragement you give to, to people who are considering going to Flagstaff? Any, any advice that you would give? Well, I'd say that a planting is one of the most exciting things you'll ever do. Uh, it is just totally unique. Uh, even though we didn't know what we were doing in Burlington with, with, with the mainline church, you get really, really close to those people because you're there for one reason. Mm-hmm. You, you, your reason that you're there is, is to convert people. Right. And, uh, and so you, you, you've got a group basically of totally committed people. You, you don't start off with any lukewarm people. And, uh, and so it's just, it's one of the most exciting things that you'll ever do yeah. is because you're there uh, as a team. Uh, you, 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 you're focused, uh, you're working together. Uh, and it, it's just, uh, it's just a unique experience. That's right. And uh, I've been involved in, in, in starting several churches around the world. And, and to me, there's just there's almost nothing more exciting I agree. And then that initial period of getting a church started. Totally, totally agree to that. Al. That's totally, I absolutely concur. Now you're 15 years in the Burlington church. Then you join another planting in Boston, same city, totally different results. Um, how did you get connected with the Boston, Boston church of Christ or it probably had a different name at that time. Can you tell me about how you left the Burlington church and then joined this other church? Well, again, uh, 15 years of, uh, good experience, but also frustration Mm. because, uh, you know, when you, when you start off with great dreams of evangelizing a whole area and impacting uh, the city of Boston, uh, and you start off with 120 people, and 15 years later, you're still 120 people. Uh, you know, you you start saying, "Okay, what's going what's going wrong here? And uh, is this what we want to do the rest of our life?" And uh, but in the meantime, uh, we were hearing, and we were we were also trying to find, out, "Okay, what are other churches doing that are growing?" And so, anytime we'd hear about a church growing or whatever, we had uh, we had a number of people that that. Uh, had had some impact, but about that time also uh, campus campus ministry was getting going, and of course uh, the, the Crossroads Church was really starting to to grow and make a major impact, enough so that uh, uh, a number of people were converted 
in Gainesville at the, at the church there uh, from the Boston area. And so uh, Gloria and I at the time, although I had a career in physics, uh, we were still leading our, our, our uh, youth in the, in the Burlington church. And we were the largest church of Christ in the area. <laughs> and so when the kids from Crossroads would come home for the holidays, they, they would come to Burlington. And so we got to know a lot of those people and, and start hearing about their stories, how they were converted, whatever. And we said, you know, that's what we thought this was going to be all along. Right. And so we started, right. uh, we even went down and visited Crossroads and whatever. But, but one of the guys that came back, it didn't actually come back. He actually went to uh, uh, Harvard Graduate School of Design uh, after he had graduated from Crossroads from the University of Florida. And uh, so he, we sort of adopted him. His name was Bob Mitchell. And uh, so he hung out with us all the time. And he actually got us going on on uh, doing soul talks with the, with the teens and, and uh things like that. And, and so he just hung out all the time. And, and so we said, Bob, uh, what can we do to get you to stay here after you finish Harvard? Right. Uh, we, we'll do anything to get you to stay here. He said, well, I have a friend who is actually always wanted to come to Boston uh, and, and evangelize the campuses because Boston at that time had 180,000 college students. There was no ministry at all to campus students. He said, if he would come, then I would probably stay. And so I still remember one night when Bob was getting close to finishing Harvard that we said, Gloria and I, and he sat in, in, a, in our floor in the living room about one o'clock in the morning praying for this guy that I had never even heard of or met named Kip McKean, that uh, if Kip McKean would come, then I'd stay. And so we were praying, God, please help Kip McKean come to Boston. Wow. And uh, so... Kip came and Bob didn't stay. <laughs> anyway, so he, he, he fell in love and left. <laughs> but anyway, that that was. Uh, uh, but also there was another uh, piece to that too. It is uh, there was a sister church uh, that was ten miles from us in Lexington called the Lexington Church of Christ, uh, which actually became eventually the Boston Church. Uh, and we became good friends with Bob and Pat Gimple because they were part of the Lexington Church. And they had uh, this derelict son uh, named Doug Arthur, who was an all-state <laughs> basketball player and hated the Church of Christ. Uh, and he wanted to go to Duke uh, at that time, which was a powerhouse in basketball. He wanted as a walk-on in basketball and make his claim to fame and forget about the Church of Christ. Right. And so he did. But he, he went to there. He went to Duke. Uh, but at that time, also, then there was a campus ministry from Crossroads there that got a hold of him and totally turned his life around. He became a disciple. And so when he came back for Christmas, uh, then then we linked up and he started helping us at, over Christmas. And then summertime, we just hung out all the time. Uh, and he helped us with the teens and whatever. And, and of course, that, that was a major influence for us. But the friendship that developed with Kip, and that was about, that was actually about 1978, I think, and uh, Kip, I think, came in 79, but anyway, um, the Lexington Church was a little bitty church, 30 members, and uh, they were primarily serviced an Air Force base, but the Air Force base closed, 
And so they were basically a dying church and were considering uh, merging with us in Burlington. And, uh, but uh, Doug came back and, and asked the leaders, hey, don't do this. Rather, let's try to get this guy. Uh, well, actually he started off uh, trying to get his campus minister to come from Duke, but he wasn't interested. And he said, I'm not interested, but I know this other guy, his name Kip McKean. <laughs> I think he would like to come. So, so long story short, the Lexington church then talked to Kip and Elena and they convinced them to come to Lexington to, to start a, a, basically a campus ministry. Uh, at that time, uh, again, a dying church of, at that time, about, uh, about 20 members at that time. And uh, so we, we then in Burlington, uh, Gloria and I just tried to duplicate everything they did uh, and uh, for three years. Uh, but the problem was nobody wanted to do it in Burlington. So we'd go to the retreats, we'd go to their devos, we'd go to their whatever. And uh, then in uh, 1983, I still remember February of 1983, Bob and Pat, uh, we hung out with Bob and Pat from time to time. We were good friends. But they had us over for dinner. And uh, at that time, Bob and Pat said, Hal and Gloria, we have a proposal for you. Uh, we'd like for you to give up your career in physics, go into full-time ministry and join us in Burlington, in Boston. And uh, that totally just blew our minds because I had a minor in Bible anyway. And, and, and the main reason I hadn't gone in, in the ministry is because I didn't like the way that Church of Christ treated preachers. Uh, but so I decided to become self-supporting as uh, so I went into physics. And, uh, but anyway, we, we struggled with that for three months, got a lot of advice, prayed about it, whatever. That was in February. Uh, and in May, uh, we decided that, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to give up my career. And so I went in uh, the research center uh, and made the announcement that I was going to leaving, leaving physics and going in the ministry, which everybody thought I was totally insane. Uh, and that was in May of 1983 and in, in July of 19, but also I was not going to do it until, until September. So I was going to stay with, with uh, the research center until September. And, but in July, the Heather Research Center called the research center together and said, we're closing the research center. So basically, I was the only person with a job. <laughs> but, but also they said, they said, Al, if you will stay on and help close down the research center till November, we'll give you a significant bonus. And you actually only have to be here about three hours a day. So basically, in, by, by September, I'd, I'd started basically in a full-time ministry, and, and, and they gave me enough of a bonus to put Stacy, our oldest, to the first year of college. So I, we just felt like God's exclamation point on that whole thing. Wow. But, uh, but it was a, a huge deal announcing in May that we were leaving uh, the Burlington Church, going to, to at that time, the Lexington Church, that... that uh, because we had, we had actually converted a number of those people and I was an elder there and it really broke people's hearts and it was one of the hardest decisions we ever made. Of course, three months later, I, I, would, I would have had to leave Boston anyway because the research center had closed. Right. But uh, anyway, that, that was that was sort of our transition. That's amazing. Now, that okay, let's just talk about it. you're 43. 
you've got a kid who's just entering college. You've got three more girls that are younger than that. No, two, two others. I mean, talk about pressure. And we have three girls. You've got three girls. Okay, so you got two, two, three girls, one in, one about to go to college. You make a major, major career shift. That must have been frightening. I can't, I can't imagine. Well, yeah, one of my questions, of course, uh, I mean, the, the Sperry job, the, the research center, that was, I love that job. I love the career. I've been there 15 years. I just got a month's vacation uh, and a uh, great retirement. And uh, it was a great job. And uh, so one of the questions I asked Bob about, about going into ministry, he said, okay, tell me about retirement. Right. And he said, oh, we have a great retirement program. When you die, you go to heaven. So, <laughs> he was he was upfront about it. But Al, do you, do you ever... And that was the retirement. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Do you ever regret that decision? When Looking back on that, how do you view it now? Would Knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Oh, man. The third best decision ever made. Uh, first was becoming a Christian. Second was marrying glory. And third was that decision to go... To, to join uh, and, and move into the Boston church. It's that time the Lexington church. And why is that? Uh, it, it, well, I mean, it was, it, it was a time that, that I've never seen so many miracles in my life mm -hmm. of changed lives, whatever. Uh, the, the, of course, we were at that time still very much a part of the church of Christ. Uh, that didn't, the change didn't happen until a number of years later. Uh, but we, uh, uh, of course, thought we had to have a building. Uh, the, I mean, any, any legitimate church had to have a building. And, and the Lexington Church had its own, own little building, but it only seated 100 people. And so that outgrew that in the first six months and started meeting in, in the uh, Arlington Baptist Church uh, in, in that was seat 600. I grew that pretty quickly and started having dual services there in the Arlington High School, which was a block down the street. But also, it really started looking for a building that we could buy and uh, found the perfect building in, in Lexington. I mean, in, in Concord, a uh, historic old church building, and started negotiating on it and uh, just about ready to close the deal. Uh, and the church bur burned to the ground. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, I mean, everybody was totally depressed, felt like Satan had won that battle and whatever. And uh, So by, by that time, we also uh, uh, started looking harder and actually found uh, in, uh, in Boston uh, an old Baptist church that would seat 1,200 people. And uh, we actually bought it. And three weeks later, it burned to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. And uh, not only that, because we obviously had scraped together all the money we had for a down payment. But uh, because the, the, uh, the reasons for the fire were suspicious, insurance would not pay immediately. Uh, or they would pay, but they would only pay book value, not what the building was worth. And we had a tremendous deal. And so we were actually in arbitration with over insurance for three years, which means it tied up all of our down payment, which means that we couldn't look for another building to buy. And so we could not buy a building. And so by that time we were grown enough, we moved into the opera house in downtown Boston. 
but after three years, we won the arbitration and got enough money in the settlement to actually fund six mission teams. Oh my gosh. So, oh my gosh. And, and, and by then we said, you know what, with, with our growth, the rate of our growth, we, we can't build it. We can't have a building because you keep outgrowing the buildings. And so at that point in time, that's where initially we decided as a movement, we put our money in people rather than buildings. I mean, obviously we, 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 we now get buildings if it makes sense, but by and large, we, it shaped our philosophy that our contribution will primarily go toward people and not, not maintenance of buildings and, and mortgages. Okay. That now that I'm so glad you brought that up because that, that's so been a question I've had. That's been a question I've had for many, many years is where did all the money come from to send out so many church plantings? I mean, how many how many church plantings went out from Boston, let's say from seventy nine to eight or ninety? How many how many plantings were sent out from that church? Uh, probably well, I think there have been forty total today. I think there were about twenty by then. That's amazing. So that arbitration win enabled you to send out six church plantings. Um, Where where else was the money coming from? I mean, it's just, I mean, you start, okay, you're starting in 79 with 30 people. Then in the next 10 years or so, you've got 20 plantings sent sent out. I go, how did it happen? I mean, of course, God, but where's that money coming from? Well, we started, first of all, uh, we, we would we fund teams with what we call the Hawaiian punch can ministry. And that was that, that we, we got people to get Hawaiian punch cans and, and uh, keep them in their homes and put all their loose change and the dollars into it and whatever. It, it's sort of the beginning of mission, special mission contributions. But we, we um, very soon realized that wasn't going to raise enough money. And so we, we started the, having a special mission contribution each year. And uh, as we grew, those churches would also kick in. I still remember, I forget exactly what year it was, but the Church of Christ, Churches of Christ, had never had a million dollar contribution uh, for missions. And so we decided we're going to have, we're going to break a million dollars uh, for missions. And, and so one of our mission seminars then, I forget what, how far, it, maybe it was, I don't know, about 19... 85, 86, I can't remember the year, but we, we broke a million dollars in special mission contribution. And so that was our, that was our primarily, uh, primary method of funding mission teams was our, our mission contribution, which at that time, uh, our, our goal primarily was most of our mission contributions were 20 times our weekly contribution. And so people would sell uh, I mean, people would sell their, their wedding rings, they would sell their houses, they would sell, I remember Lynn, Lynn Green at the time sold a, or a racehorse, uh, whatever. I mean, people just sacrificed because wow. we believed in winning the world. That's awesome. That's great. So you were there at the beginning. For the first four years, you were at a, a church nearby. What? Three years. Oh, three years. Okay. So let's talk a little bit of what you're in a traditional, of course, they're all traditional churches, but you're in the Burlington church that had been a planting. What was different, Al? What What did you see there in Kip? Okay, Kip's become, you know, very controversial in later times, but something it was really special what was happening there. What did you see in him? What did you see in the church that was different than your experience? What, looking back, what was 
what st- stands out to you? There was a drive and a dream to win the world. It wasn't just to have a growing church, but it was basically to win the world. Uh, it was uh, very early on, uh, actually Kip came up with the idea of, of doing pillar churches. And that, uh, the idea was uh, to, to go to, to major metropolitan areas in the world, for instance, the Paris uh, or, or uh, a, or just all, all the major cities, uh, London, right. Paris, uh, uh, Bombay, uh, Hong Kong, whatever, and, and start a pillar church there and from there be able to evangelize that whole country. And so that became the plan. And uh, it's very interesting, Donald, we, we, we very soon uh, caught the attention of a lot of church growth experts. Uh, for instance, Donald McGavern was at that time uh, the sort of called the father of church growth. One of his quotes was that, that he told us, he said, you're the only group that I've ever known of that has a viable plan to win the world. Mm. And uh, so, I mean, it was, it was, it was not just, we're not just going to convert Boston. We're going to, we're going to make an, we're going to try to convert the world. Mm-hmm. And that, that just fueled people. I mean, that, that dream drove people. Right. It's amazing. Inspiring. Looking back, what, what do you feel like you could apply today from things that were going on back then? You know, what, what are three, you've, you've talked about the vision for the world. What are three things that, that you would attribute that rapid growth to? I mean, how, how, like starting from 30, where was it at in, in 1989, 10 years later, how big was the church in Boston? From 1989, 1979 to 1990, basically 11 years, the church grew at 66% a year. Oh my gosh. For 10 years. Uh, that means it doubled every year and a half. Uh, and uh, so that means that you know, starting with the, the 30 would-bes, uh, I mean, in, in 10 years, you were over. I mean, this is this is this counts the plantings too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were you were well over 10 over over 20,000 members. Uh, so I mean, it, like literally, it's saw a straight line growth mm-hmm. uh, of, of about. 66% a year. Okay. So and, uh, there ahead. are many reasons for it. Uh, number one, uh, you had the enthusiasm of youth. Uh, the median age of the Boston church uh, for those 10 years was still in the twenties. Uh, and I, I was, when I, when I became a part of the Boston church or the time, the Lexington church that uh uh, 43 years old. I was the oldest person in the church, and the people still still tell me now that we thought you were really old. Now they're now they're that old. <laughs> but uh, I was I was ancient at 43 years old, and, and so it was it was it was a youth movement, mm-hmm. uh, and and you, of course you had you had the enthusiasm of youth. Of course, you had the the the, the a lot of a lot of mistakes you made as youth too. 
Sure. We, we, at, at 43, I had not, uh, there's a lot of similarity, church growth and, and family growth. And nobody in the church had, had the experience of, of having a second generation family that the th lessons you learn from that. Right. And so we made a lot of fundamental mistakes that we had to do over again, would do very different. But it was, uh, I think a lot of it too was, I, I think it was God just had his hand on it. I think that God has had his hand at certain times in history yeah. for certain things to, to happen, revival movements, whatever. And I think this was absolutely one of them. It was on, on the heels of the, of the Vietnam War. Uh, and you had youth youth were looking for purpose in life. Yeah. What, what I want to do, what I want to make a difference. I don't want to fight war. Uh, that's where you know, the Peace Corps was getting going then. You know, a, lot of, a lot of youth was involved in trying to figure out how can I make my life count mm. rather than just how can I make a lot of money. If a, there, there, there are church leaders listening to this, and if a person wanted to see their church growing today, what could they adopt from that time? I'm mean, clearly God's blessing, his hand, his power was resting on the church and, and the churches at that time. But what could they adopt from that time that you feel like would make the biggest difference today? Ooh, that's a, there's a lot of things there. Number one, you got to have a dreamer. Uh, you got to have big dreams. Uh, you just, you can't just, not status quo. I mean, you, just, you don't want to say, hey, we want a church that grows at 5% a year. Right. Uh, you're never going to get there. I mean, you're going to have a big dreamer. And then you're going to have a core group of people that buy into that dream. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 of course, in that involved, you got to have some talent involved in it, too. But I think also you, you've got to have, uh, to really make an impact, you've got to have youth. Uh, you, 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 you need you need the basic older people, obviously, it's very important. I mean, that's sort of the backbone of the church. But you've got to have the enthusiasm uh, and then basically naivete the, the, in a good sense right. of youth. Right. That just don't, just don't know you can't do it. That's powerful. That's and great. you've got to also have the basic total commitment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we're just going to totally buy in and and be given over totally to God, no holes barred. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can't you can't tolerate lukewarmness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, let's talk a little bit about that. What what did you see in Kip that was outstanding or, or exceptional? What made him different than the average preacher at that time? Well, I think that he, he wasn't too unusual from the other preachers that came out of Crossroads. Uh, I mean, they, they, they came out of Crossroads, trained as preachers, and I think about, what, 40 of them were trained, uh, and, and a number of them eventually ended up in Boston. But I think they caught from that Crossroads experience the, the dream that, that this can really happen. Mm -hmm. uh, we can really, God can use us to make an impact on the world. That's awesome. And Kip came in with that dream. That absolutely, uh, his dream was initially for you know, the what drew him to Boston was the campus, the campuses, and the 180,000 college students and whatever. Wow! Uh, but also the the dream that that he had, which was unique at that time, to really make an impact on the world. Because at that time, 
you had to have a lot of faith to think you're going to make an impact on the world when you look at the world at that time, because number one, you had the Iron Curtain, uh, you had uh, the Bamboo Curtain, you had, uh, you know, Russia was totally closed, China was totally closed, you had apartheid in South Africa, you had the Middle East War, you had, uh, I mean, everywhere you look, you had uh, Civil War in Latin America, everywhere you looked in the world, you'd say, you you can't make an impact there. Right. And yet God opened the door in every one of those places. Isn't that amazing? It's like, I mean, the, the timing. To, to, to think, I mean, one of the most amazing places of all was, was Russia uh, with Andy and Tammy and the team that went in there. I mean, that, that they went in before the coup uh, when, when uh, you couldn't do anything legally. You couldn't even bring in Bibles legally. Hmm. And they go in there and then there's the coup and suddenly it's just wide open. And, and in the first year, they baptized over 800. It's a, it's a miracle. It's totally, totally the power of God. So, Al, you and Gloria obviously had a remarkable marriage. How, how many years were you married? 56. 56, okay. And what, what practices were you doing that kept your love so strong? I mean, it's clearly you wrote a book on it. I mean, you guys always seem so happy together. What, what, what were you doing behind the scenes that really made it, made the difference to keep your love going? Well, I mean, first of all, like I said, we were best friends. We just loved hanging out together. We, we spent as much time as we could together. Um, we, uh, one of the things that we decided that we would do from, from the very start of our marriage was that we decided we would we would pray together every day, mm. and uh, so we, we did that. Uh, except when we were apart, uh, we literally did that every day of our life, and uh, we 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 call that the glue of our marriage, mm. uh, and uh, because it was always uh, uh, the two of us and God mm. together, and uh, we. Uh, regularly uh, would spend special time together. Uh, for instance, one of the things we really it, still it, it advise marriage to do is to uh, every three months at least uh, get away together, just the two of you for at least a night. Uh, because it's just, it does two things. Number one, it rejuvenates your relationship have that special time together, but also it gives you that to look forward to. When you know that you're going to be doing that in a few weeks, you, you, you've got that to look forward to. Right. Uh, that when you're going through some hard times or whatever, then we can just think another another six weeks, we're going to be together, whatever. So, uh, and uh, we, we always did special things for each other. We always trying to surprise each other with things. And it was just, uh, we just wanted to keep our relationship fresh because we saw so many marriages that we just didn't want to be like. Right. We'd, we'd go out and eat and look at a couple and say, we don't want to be like them. No, right. Whatever. So it was just always a goal of, we're just going to, we're going to work to make this really a, a great loving relationship that, that we super enjoy. Oh. I mean, I, I still regret, I mean, these, the, all the, all the couples that are getting in trouble over COVID uh, the special, the, all the time together. I just don't understand. I, mean, I, I wish we, I wish I had Gloria during COVID. 
Right. We would have, we would have loved having that much time together. Right. Exactly. Not only was your marriage strong, but your your kids, all three of your girls grew up to be strong disciples. What what's what were you doing? I mean, how how did that happen? Of course you can't guarantee it, but what what practices were you doing that you wish more families would put into practice? Well, it's something that, that we uh, firmly believed at the time and still believe is, is um, meal times together. Uh, we, we, we had really special, fun dinner times together. And uh, we, we tried to do, I mean, of course, especially as the kids got older and everybody started having their own activities and whatever, we, we, we would still try to have uh, the majority of our nights together, we'd, we'd have a meal together. And it was, uh, at that time, we didn't have cell phones, but if we had we'd been no cell phones, we had no TV, no telephone, no whatever, and, and nobody leaves the table until everybody leaves the table. And we would we'd always, uh, we would do things like uh, we, we had uh, a memory verse of the week that everybody memorized and it was cumulative and Everybody could ask everybody else, okay, what what is the, what was this verse and whatever. It's interesting. Still today, we can still quote some of those verses we memorized together. Wow. Uh, and then we would have uh, one family night together. Uh, I say night. It wasn't always a night. It might be just an hour uh, together. But it was a it was a time when, for instance, the girls would fix the meals. They would plan the meals. We'd have a, some games. Uh, whatever, but it was just a special, and, our, and the girl, we'd take turns planning it. Who who wants to plan the, the, the family night uh, this week or next week or whatever? And so we just, uh, there were a lot of, a lot of great memories and we would, we would spend time getting away with them together. And uh, Gloria and I both would try to have uh, uh, discipling times with them. I'd take, I'd take the girls out for a Coke and we'd talk and the Gloria had spent time with the girls and whatever. And so we, we try to make each one of them feel special. Awesome. And they were all, they, they were they were a good age. Each of them were three years apart. And so there was not a lot of competition with each other. That was an advantage. And they all liked each other. Yeah. Uh, and still do. I mean, it's, uh, but it was, it was just, uh, it was a real blessing to us. I mean, it was, and, and to be truthful, I mean, all of our, all of our girls were, uh, None of them was was rebellious, mm-hmm. and, and of course, kids uh, they all have their own nature, and, and you just you, you can't change that. But uh, we we our girls were very much wanted to be taught and wanted to be loved and wanted to be a part of the family, and that God, God used that. Right, Al. One of the most common questions I get uh, to the podcast is, how do you do ministry and raise kids at the same time? Any advice? Yeah, well, each situation is different, but I think again, what what we say is is you got to get your priorities straight. Uh, is is ministry uh, number one takes a backseat to your relationship with God. It takes a backseat to your relationship with your mate. It takes a backseat to your relationship with your kids. It's, it's always got to be after all those things. And, and we tried hard to make our kids feel like they were more important than the ministry was. 
although we, I mean, obviously there were times we, we couldn't be with them and whatever, but, but we, we tried very hard to make them feel like, you know, you, you are more important uh, than the ministry. Uh, or for that matter, for anybody else, more important than your job or more important than whatever. But it was, it was always God first, your mate second, your kids third. Uh, and, and, and we tried very hard to make our kids feel that and that they, they felt that. That's great. I know this is a sensitive subject, Al, but can you tell me a little bit about how you and Gloria discovered that she was sick? Can you tell me how that came up and, and the, the, the development of her illness? Yeah, we had just uh, come back. Uh, this is 2012, and we had just gotten back from time in uh, – Tokyo and Seoul and um, I think Manila and Hong Kong. We, we, we'd been gone uh, working with the churches for uh, oh, probably a month. And uh, we were on our way back to go to San Antonio for the conference uh, in, uh, in 2012. And uh, we stopped in, in uh, Virginia. Our oldest daughter, Stacy and Andy live there. And so we stopped there for several days. Uh, the, the whole whole family was going to to San, to San Antonio, but we stopped there for a few days. And uh, when we flew a lot, Gloria's ankles would usually swell up, and then uh, after we landed, they they go back down. But this particular time, uh, her ankles were still swollen, and after a couple of days, and Stacy said, "You need to go to a podiatrist and and see what he says about that." Uh, and so she went to a podiatrist there uh, in uh, uh, Virginia. And the podiatrist said, okay, uh, the, there's, uh, we, we need to take a scan uh, uh, and, and, and see, because we want, first thing we want to look for is, is clots, to make sure that you don't have a clot. And uh, they took a scan and didn't, didn't find anything, but he said, I'm going to look a little bit higher. And so they did another scan and, and noticed that there was fluid around the lung. Uh, that obviously was very concerning. And they said at that time, okay, there, there's three things that that could probably be due to. Uh, one is, is an infection. Uh, two is a heart problem. Or three is cancer. And so Gloria and I decided it would definitely be an infection from travel. Right. right. So, uh, so anyway, we then, then uh, went on to San Antonio for the conference. And while we were in Texas for the conference, we got a call from the hospital there in Virginia saying, uh, bad news. Uh, the test shows that it's, uh, it's cancer. Uh, and we don't know what kind of cancer it is, but uh, you need to go back to L.A. as soon as you can and, and get that tested and find out what what's going on. And so we, we were there, the whole, whole family was there in, in, uh, in San Antonio. And then we went back to UCLA and they did further testing and found out that it was, it was uterine cancer. And so uh, began, uh, she had a, a, a total hysterectomy then and began uh, chemo uh, for 
six months, I think, uh, at which time she was then total remission. So, I mean, very, very good news. Uh, and uh, then, uh, then we moved to, uh, to Phoenix and they continued to monitor her. But uh, then, then after a couple of years, it had reoccurred. And so she then went into chemo again. And uh, this time did not go into remission, but the counts went, went back down. And then, uh, uh, then the counts went back up and then she went into chemo again. And that was, that was our, the last round. But uh, it finally, finally, and she went into uh, some experimental treatment but uh, finally, the, the last word was that it transitioned into her brain. And uh, so the doctor said, uh, you can, we can continue the treatment or you can go on hospice, your choice. And uh, so we said, if it's going to the brain, we don't want to continue this. And we went hospice and she was gone within two weeks after that. Wow. So we were very thankful that she, she never really had a lot of things that could have happened once cancer goes to the brain. She never had any of that. God spared her from that. Wow. So, and we were able to have all the family there uh, for uh, the uh, her last days. And she was totally aware. And we just had a great time together as a family. And a lot of our friends came. And uh, uh, the girls and I have all said, if we could have designed her last days, we could not have come up with as good a plan as God came up with. Mm. It was just almost uh, the perfect ending uh, to uh, to a, a great life. I mean, obviously, we, I'd, I'd still like to have her around, but uh, it was uh, it was uh, compared to what a lot of people go through at the end. Uh, I'm just so thankful that that she would, God took her the way that He took her. I know that your whole family was around. What, what made it special? I mean, what made it um, as unique as, as you explained there? Well, I mean, it was, she, she still, she, she still had her sense of humor. Uh, she knew she was going to be with God. And so she was, that was exciting to her. And uh, the, 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 the kids, the grandkids, everybody was hanging out at the house here. Uh, and there, there were there was singing, there was joking, there were tears, there were whatever. I mean, it was it was just a very special last week mm-hmm. that the whole whole family had together. And 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 uh, uh, you, you would have to know Gloria to know her sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, she never lost her. In fact, her humor almost accelerated toward the end. And we nobody knew how long uh, we we really had with her. Uh, and, and, and one time, uh, and we had her, her, she had a hospital bed in, in the living room. And so it was sort of the center of activity. And, uh, uh, for those, those last, uh, nine days actually, but, uh, about three days before, before, uh, I lost her, uh, she called me over the bed and, she, and, uh, she said, Al, I, I, uh, I think this may be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have to say goodbye, but then she said, "But I don't know because I've never done this before." <laughs> oh my gosh! And what what was the date of her passing? 
uh, June, uh, July 14th, uh, two, uh, two years ago. 2018, July 14th. What, was she, was she conscious till the very end or like how she, did she slip into a Well, coma? she was conscious till the, till the last day. Mm -hmm. uh, then she went into lost consciousness okay. for the last few hours. I, you know, I heard from somebody that you told her when she got sick that you would never miss a doctor's appointment with her. Is that true? I don't know if I told her that. I, I, I did that. And I mean, she, she knew that. I mean, I was, I mean, that was the advantage. I mean, my, my word by then, you know, I was, time time she got cancer, I was already 75. And so it, it was not like I had an a, a, a hour a day job that I had to be at. And so it was in that sense of blessing, I had the flexibility that, that I didn't have to say, I'm taking off work here, or I'm doing this right. or whatever, right. I'm still in the ministry. Right. But but with all that flexibility and you know, I, I was always with her at chemo and doctor's appointments and hmm. whatever. I mean, number one, I just wanted to be with her because I didn't know how long I had with her. But right. secondly, I didn't want her to do that by herself. Well, how did, how did you, and, and how, how do you cope with her passing? I mean, you, uh, what you're experiencing, it's happening with, it's happening with increasing regularity, uh, as our movement gets older. Um, sure. How, how have you learned to cope with this? I don't think you learn to cope with it. You, you don't ever get over it. Uh, I, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's still, I'm, I'm lonely. Uh, I'm, I'm living by myself. I'm five minutes from one of our daughters, Stephen Carey. Uh, but it's, it's just, I mean, uh, I've got pictures of her all over the place. I mean, I just miss her and, uh, there's, there's no way that, that, that your partner for 56 years that you're just going to get over. Mm. Uh, and of course at my age, I'm not, not about to remarry. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe if I was in my fifties or something like that, but, uh, it, it wouldn't even be fair to think about marrying somebody else because nobody could hold a candle to her. Right. I mean, it was, uh. It was, uh, she was, she was the joy of my life. Yeah. So. What, what, but anyway, every, everybody grieves in different ways. And I think that there's just no, no one way to grieve. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, people can say, how did you get over it? I never got over it. I never will get over it. Yeah. I mean, you just, I'm, it's lonely without her. Yeah. What, what has helped you that might help others who are, are losing or have lost loved ones? Well, I think you, you, you gotta, you got to number one, not retreat from the world. Uh, I think diving in and staying busy and having close friends and people that you can be real with, uh, people you can laugh with and cry with. And I mean, my girls, uh, bless their hearts of have, have circled the wagons around me and are always checking on me and whatever, only one lives here. Uh, one lives in California and one in Virginia and one here. But uh, they're, I mean, it's, it's just uh, uh, sometimes like, they're like mother hens and uh, saying, okay, how you, and, and Carrie, uh, the one that lives here is the most emotional one. And I'm, I'm the least emotional one of all the, all the five of us. And she'll always say, okay, dad, how you feeling? I said, Carrie, I don't know how to <laughs> back off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you you are a a, a scientific person. You st- you have a doctorate in physics. Um, you seem you know you strike me as a very self composed person, and and um, I just can't imagine the kind of depth of loss. How how did you go back to just being single? Like, how do you spend your time now? Like, what? How do you make that massive adjustment to being, you know, by yourself? Well, I think again, I, I think each person is different, but uh, I stay very busy. I'm, I'm still basically a full time minister, so I mean, I'm still very involved with with people. I think that it would be deadly for me to just to, to retreat into I see. become a hermit. I see. Got it. Uh, so I'm, I'm very involved with people and, and try to be very open with people. Yeah. Well, Al, I really appreciate the time. Any final words that you'd like to share with people who want to make their life count for God? You've you spent 80 years uh, devoted to God, most of, those, most of those years, obviously. Any advice that you'd like to pass on to people that would like to follow in the footsteps of, of total commitment to God? Well, I think that first of all, you, you, you got to decide I'm going to be totally committed to God. I mean, whatever He wants, that's what I'm going to do. But then I think you got to surround yourself and find people that that think like you think, uh, that have that you can dream together, mm. and uh, you can you can call each other higher and you can challenge each other. Uh, to me, it, it's uh, I think that's so very important. I mean, obviously, I had that in one sense built in with Gloria. Uh, and then, then all three of our girls caught that caught that dream. But even when you don't have that, you you, you can have friends that that have similar type dreams and, and can call each other higher. And I think that's so much of what we need in the church now. And I think we've got to get back to those basics of of, of discipling relationships, or prayer partners, whatever you want to call them, or people that that think like you do, who who know you're good, bad, and ugly. Uh, and call you higher and you call them higher. Amen. That's great. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate the time again, Al, and respect you so highly. And I know you're respected around the world. Thank you for your commitment to God, your love, your example. Uh, it's interesting to me that you were an old timer back in the Boston days. You're at 43, you were the old person. I, <laughs> I was old. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still serving God. That's that's what's so inspiring. And I, I hope to be as fired up as, as you are when I'm your age. And I want to thank you today for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. It's been a great time together. And I, I hope that you're enjoying this time that we are spending time together every week. I'd like to ask you to keep praying for the church planting in Flagstaff in the summer of 2021. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count to live a no regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.